You're listening to a chapel service recorded at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. For more information, visit asburyseminary.edu. Never trust an American with a camera. Thank you very much, Ben, for that um, stunning introduction. Had I known you were going to be making such use of that, I might have put on a different jacket, but there we are. Um, it's, it's a delight to be here with you again. Let me say a couple of things about um, what I'm going to do now. Uh, the first is that the, yesterday's lecture at this time and today's lecture are not exactly sequential treatments of the same topic. They are more converging treatments of the same topic, coming at a similar nest of issues from a slightly different starting point. So I will crisscross here and there with some things that I said yesterday. That's just in the nature of the case, and it doesn't mean that I have necessarily got the wrong sheet of notes, though um, you may wonder that from time to time, as I do when I'm on the road. Have I, you know, is this what I'm supposed to be talking about today? Um, I hope it is. The ti- and the second thing is the title for today is God in Public. And uh, when I was on the way here, I thought I'd look on your website and see uh, what you had to say. Just Sometimes that's quite revealing, actually, before you get to a particular place, to go on the website and see what it is that they think is going to happen and whether it conforms with what it is that you think you are going to do. And on your website, there is a very small but interesting misprint, because instead of God in public, it said, God is public. That's quite interesting, actually. And I think, really, that's one of the things I do want to talk about, that God is public. God is not private. God is not simply the one that we know when we go into our rooms, as Jesus taught us to do, and shut the door. But God is the one who is out and about and is at work in the world, which is his in the first place. And the challenge today is to say, what could that look like? What should that look like? So I want to set the problem first, as I see it, and it's a many-sided problem, of the apparent disjunction of God and public life, which has been written into a great deal of Western theory and practice, but which is now looking really rather threadbare. And then to go in the middle section of what I want to say, back to Scripture and look again, as we did yesterday, at the Gospels briefly, but then to develop a bit further than we did yesterday, a theology of public life and of rulers, and uh, to show how I think that grows out of the biblical theology which we find in the Gospels, and then some concluding remarks on an agenda for the church living out into the public world in the 21st century, in what we may end up calling the post-postmodern world. You know how it is. Post-modernity may be where we are at the moment, but it's not a good place to stay. We can't go back to modernity. We certainly can't go back to pre-modernity. We've got to go on, but where to? And that question, which has cultural resonances and philosophical resonances, also emphatically has public life resonances, and we'll come back to that. So the problem, as I see it, of God in public is of an assumed disjunction which goes back at least to the 18th century. It is enshrined in a measure in your constitution, and though this may surprise you, it is actually enshrined in the perception of many people in my country as well. You know, very often when I come to America, they say, well, or you say, well, you've got an established church in England, that means for you, church and state go together. We don't have anything like that, and for us, church and state are completely separate. And actually, life is much more complicated than that, because though, yes, the Church of England is by law established, 
established and I have a seat as of right in the House of Lords and all of that. In fact, for the great majority of what passes for public life in my own country, church and state seem miles and miles away from each other and sometimes the politicians and certainly the journalists seem bent on pushing that gap ever further apart. However, when I look across the Atlantic and see what goes on in America, I see a society which says officially that church and state are completely disjoined, and yet which in fact has all kinds of ways in which they have gotten themselves stitched back together again. I was first alerted to this, ooh, 25 years ago was it, um, when Ronald Reagan used God Bless America as a campaign song. And I thought, funny, I support, thought you Americans weren't supposed to do that. Um, and I'm not so worried about Reagan or the song. I'm interested in the fact that it was coming together and that nobody seemed to think that that was particularly odd. And uh, as I said yesterday, there is a further oddity in that it is assumed in America very often that if you're bringing your Christian faith into public life, that means you're going to be voting in an ever more rightwards direction, whereas in England it is often, not always, but often assumed that if you're bringing your faith into public life, you're going to be campaigning for peace and justice, you're going to be working for environmental issues, you're particularly going to be campaigning about global debt. In other words, you're getting into some parts at least of what the newspapers see as a left-wing package. Now, I'll say more about that right-left nonsense in a minute because it is actually nonsense the way it works out. But it all goes... It all goes back to the 18th century enlightenment, to the deism, which said that God was upstairs somewhere a long way away, God's in his heaven and we run the world. And of course, kicking God upstairs like that always was a way of humans claiming power over the world. We no longer have theocracies because we no longer want tyrannies, so we have vox populi, vox dei, though the voice of the people is the voice of God, insofar as God may have anything to do with it. So what we have to do is vote, vote more, vote on and vote frequently and then everything will be all right, won't it? And we were told in the 18th century by the philosoph of the Enlightenment, Voltaire, Rousseau and people, that religion was bad for your health, it was bad for society, it had been disproved historically, um, it was certainly damaging for all sorts of things that you might be wanting to do and that you should écraser l'enfant, get rid of the infamy. Um, as, as they said in the French Revolution particularly. And instead we would have the bright new future of an enlightened republic. And uh, I told a joke yesterday about Russia and America, but this one is about France. It's not a joke, but it's about France and America, with again Britain sitting in the middle thinking, isn't this odd? You know, that the French thought that by working towards universal adult suffrage, they would create utopia. And the reason that French people look so miserable is that they know it's not true. It hasn't worked. They've had universal adult suffrage for a long time hasn't happened. And the reason all you Americans are so happy is that you really believe it has in your case. And that we, we in Britain, we in Britain think, hmm, yeah, well, we never actually thought voting would solve all the problems. It's a better way to go than not voting, but we're not absolutely convinced, and we've never been convinced in Britain, that the kind of things that you can do with a democracy actually do generate utopia. It's the least bad of political systems rather than, as far as we say, the shining new future. And, uh, of course, there are all sorts of anomalies within this. But, in fact, this idea of uh, let's get God out of the picture and then we will run the world the way we want to, that has manifestly run out of steam in recent days. Of course, the rise of liberation theology in the 60s and 70s was a protest against it, a protest against the idea that, that religion was a private thing and it was to do with my worshipping God in private, my saying my prayers, and my eventually going off 
off into a place called heaven which had nothing to do with the world. Liberation theology said, no, God is the God of justice. Just read the Old Testament. Just read the book of Exodus. Just read the Gospels. And you'll see that this gospel thing is something that must explode onto the public stage. Now, because that had been off limits for so long, it came upon us with liberation theology with all kinds of distortions. You know, if you have a vacuum and then suddenly there's a a break in the wall of the vacuum, the air rushes in and often makes an explosion and isn't actually a very healthy thing. And what happened with liberation theology was a whole bunch of biblical ideas coming rushing back into the public square from which they'd been excluded for far too long and didn't always get the job done, didn't always get clarity as a result. But alongside that, we've now had the postmodern deconstruction of that Enlightenment ideal, and people have recognized that the Enlightenment ideal was always a story about our own power. We will get God out of the way, and then we are free to exploit the world the way we want with our money, with our technology, with our skill, with our ability, So that, as has often been pointed out, the whole Western world bought into a form of Gnosticism where it said, we are the elite, we have discovered the secret of life, we with our skills, we have worked out who we really are, and we are the enlightened ones. And that gives us carte blanche to go around the rest of the world treating people the way we want. And this is precisely what the British did uh, for much of the 19th century. Okay, there was a lot of very good stuff as well. In a short lecture, it's not, po- not possible to do other than be quite broad brush about this. But there was this idea that because we were the advanced ones, we were the enlightened ones, we had the right to go. And for instance, we British made India part of our empire and got fabulously rich on the back of India. And that continued well on, as you know, into the 20th century and so on and so on. Unfortunately now, with postmodernity, all that construct really has run out of steam big time. And we've seen, obviously, in the last 10 years in particular, those defining postmodern moments, which include September the 11th, where you have one grand narrative quite literally crashing into another grand narrative in the form of planes flown by terrorists crashing into buildings whose very existence and status symbolized the power of the West to dominate world trade. And there's all sorts of things going on there with the relentless and appalling wickedness of those terrorist atrocities still, I fear, fresh in our minds. I should say, on the side somewhere, I have recently been accused in print of downplaying the sheer evil of those terrorist attacks. That's actually ridiculous. I think whenever I have spoken of those terrorist atrocities, I've named them as what they are, radical and relentless in their evil. And there's, you know, just in case anyone was was thinking I was going soft in the head or something, of course. And we in Britain have have suffered um, smaller versions of the same thing, and we're warned even today, this today, by our Prime Minister, uh, seen it on the internet, that the terrorist threat in Britain has come up higher again. Life is very complicated, but my point is, is out of all of this mess, people are now actually being pushed or pulled into two opposing camps, neither of which is a good or healthy place to be. 
On the one hand, there are those who want to drive the Enlightenment agenda as far as it'll possibly go and say we've just got to be utter secularists because anything else is madness. The phenomenon of fundamentalism, whether Muslim fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism, drives a lot of people towards the secularism that we see in contemporary writers like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. I'm sorry, by the way, to export some British atheists into your country, but um, actually we live in a global village about these things, but the, the real animus of what they're saying is, look at religion, it's really bad for you, it does unspeakable things, the sooner we wipe it off the map, the better. This actually is straight out of the 18th century, even though they, they seem to think that it's, it's a, a new idea, and certainly, it, people buy, why do people buy that stuff? on both sides of the Atlantic. They buy it in droves because people are afraid of fundamentalism. But equally, those who know that secularism isn't the answer often find themselves, to their surprise, driven in a more rigid and fundamentalistic way. And so you get the people who are shrill and certain about their atheism and the people who are shrill and certain about their faith, whether it's Muslim or Christian, and neither of them are actually making healthy contributions, and that's putting it mildly, to what ought to be going on uh, somewhere as we do God in public and without really any way of adjudicating between them. And in the middle of that, those who are leading our public life, and I speak about my own folk um, rather than I would speak about yours, those who are leading our public life just don't seem to get it. Uh, Jim Wallace's book, which I quoted yesterday, God's Politics, had as his subtitle, Why the Right Get It Wrong and the Left Don't Get It. But actually, it's more deep-rooted than that. Our politicians are still desperately saying, vote for me and the Enlightenment utopia will arrive eventually um, after all. Whereas most of us know that, in fact, that stuff, that train has come off the tracks. And that that's why, in my country at least, fewer people vote in elections now than vote in reality TV shows like Big Brother. Because they have gone on voting and nothing has changed. They've gone on half believing the promises of the politicians and then this guy or that person has got into office and actually four years later, five years later, nothing much seems to have got better. And people are talking now quite openly about the decline of democracy. Do we in the churches have anything to say about that? Do we want to rescue democracy exactly as the Enlightenment invented it? Or is there... Are, are there, could there be other ways of going about it? Those are really burning issues of our time. And let's just face it, it would be very odd if as Christians we had nothing whatever to say into that debate, wouldn't it? As though that was something the philosophers and the political scientists could get on with while we just sat back and did our own pious thing and studied John's Gospel and Romans as though they had nothing to tell us about the real world. And in the middle of all of that, we have huge and mounting problems in the world the problem of global debt, the problem of the ecological crisis, the problem of war, both in general and in its modern means, and the problem of nuclear war in particular, and the threat that still is there of all that nuclear stuff which is lying around. We have the problem that the language of rights, of human rights, which is enlightenment language which owes quite a lot to Christian tradition. The language of rights has been hijacked by every possible special interest group you like to mention, so that now everyone pops up talking about my rights, their rights, somebody else's rights, and the language of rights has become almost useless. And we, we are finding it difficult to invent something which will do the job that the language of rights was meant to do without it just collapsing into a morass of different people's agendas. 
And in the middle of it, of course, we have all the medical and scientific questions, which really do deeply affect our public life. Stem cell research, euthanasia, the problem of cloning, and so on. On the euthanasia debate, frankly, we in the West have colluded with death for so long by our dualism, which says that we are meant to escape from this world and go off to another place called heaven. We have colluded with death for so long that it shouldn't be surprising that we have opened the door to people saying, well, actually, death might be a good option for some people in some circumstances, so let's hurry it along. And in all of these, I want to say that actually God is passionately and compassionately interested in and can about these issues, and if we Christians, I mean, the trouble is so many Christians will just throw slogans at these problems in a fundamentalistic way. We know what the answer is, bang, there it is, just take it from us, we've got it right. Instead of wrestling with the larger structural issues which have generated fundamentalism and secularism as two bad answers to to present predicaments, and we need to find ways back into paths of wisdom. And the path of wisdom, moving into the middle section of this all-too-brief lecture, is that the God of the Bible claims the whole world as his own. You know that. I spoke about it yesterday, but let's just emphasize it. The God of the Bible claims the whole world as his own. Another C.S. Lewis quote, every square inch of space, every split second of time is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. You can't escape and say here is a private sphere. We do God in this sphere and then the public square can look after itself. Um, When Tony Blair was Prime Minister, somebody uh, put a a question up to him or on the airwaves or something, what Tony Blair thought about God. And his press secretary answered in a, a line that has now become famous, Downing Street doesn't do God. Now, what he was saying was, just don't let's go there, because I know what you journalists want to do. You want to have Tony Blair sounding all pious so that you can then present it, that he's got a hotline to God, so when he goes and bombs somebody, God told him to. Now, Blair wouldn't actually want to say that, I think, but uh, that was the answer. Faced with that problem, we're basically secularists. God is over there, he lives in our private life, and we're doing public public world stuff. But the problem is... Which God are we talking about? Are we talking about the absentee landlord of Enlightenment deism? The God who sits up in the sky looking down to see what we're doing and telling us we shouldn't, occasionally zapping somebody with a thunderbolt, but mostly staying right out of the equation and maybe at the end welcoming some people to go and share an eternal non-spatio-temporal life with him? Or are we talking about the God who says... I have heard the cry of my people and I am coming down to rescue them. Are we talking about the God who says, I'm fed up waiting for something to happen so I'm going to be like a woman in labor and I'm going to gasp and pant and scream out until I bring my justice and my salvation to the ends of the earth. Read through Exodus, Isaiah, the Psalms and so on. And when you say, what would that God look like? If that God actually came and did it, you would find to your shock that it would look very much like Jesus of Nazareth, walking around the streets of Galilee, entering compassionately and passionately into the public life, not just the private life, the public life of his people. Oh yes, being canny about it, staying out of trouble. When Herod asks cautious, asks awkward questions, he gives the cautious and wise answer. He doesn't want to spring the trap too soon. But going around, putting down markers which say, 
God is becoming king, and this, what, this is what it looks like. God is becoming king, and don't expect it to validate all your national dreams. Don't expect it to endorse your particular policies, because when God becomes king, that slices through at an oblique angle, through all your posturing, all your lefts and rights and ups and downs and highs and lows, all your royalties like Herod, not that he really was, and all your revolutionaries like the Sicarii or the Zealots. The kingdom of God slices through all of that. The God of the Bible who claims the world as his own is the God we know in Jesus Christ and by his spirit. And this results in a different theology of public engagement from that which is offered by fundamentalism of whatever variety and from that of which the secularists are afraid. It's interesting. Go back behind contemporary secularism a hundred years, a hundred and a few years, and you find Nietzsche, of course, who seems to me to have been desperately afraid of the sort of God who's always interfering, who's always saying no, who's always anti-life, who's anti-world, anti-body, anti-human. Goodness knows, I'm not a scholar of Nietzsche, what he had suffered or heard in his younger days. But he'd got this image of God from somewhere, that if there was a God, he was a killjoy God. A God who didn't like us being human, who wanted to stop us having a good time. We've got to get that God off the map. And that's again and again what the secularists are afraid of. And then we find Jesus who comes and wherever he goes, there's a party. Jesus goes and celebrates the kingdom. Jesus goes and feasts with all the wrong people. He makes people's lives better. He gives them something to cheer about. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. And watch, this is what happens when you get on with that agenda. Jim Wallace in his new book says that he grew up in an evangelical church, but he never ever remembers hearing a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that interesting? That we have been in the evangelical tradition so much an epistles-based people. So much a, here's Romans 3 to 8, this is how you get saved, justified, um, sanctified, whatever, and few, then you make it to heaven at the end. And we'll forget about that stuff about idolatry, we'll forget about that stuff about the Jews, and we'll forget about lots of other stuff. And then we wonder why we struggle to put the Gospels together. The kingdom of God was, of course, the central message and aim of Jesus. And the kingdom of God was not about an escapist fantasy. It was about the kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. And again, slicing through some of the things that I said yesterday, it is time to recapture the integration of the gospel narratives as not just the ministry of Jesus with an unfortunate and then surprisingly happy end, or the death and resurrection of Jesus as the saving events which enable Pauline theology to happen with a rather odd extended early bit about Jesus going around doing and saying some neat things. No, that simply won't do. The Gospels are holes and demand to be read as such. And historical criticism of the Gospels over the last 200 years has very often been an exercise in trying to stop the Gospels as wholes being heard as wholes. And we in the church have gone along for the ride, and it's time to put that straight. And the Gospels are to be integrated with and seen as the climax of the whole Old Testament story. Each of the Gospels does that in a different way. Matthew, by telling his genealogy and saying, it's that whole narrative which is now coming to its climax. John, by saying, in the beginning was the word and writing a new Genesis and so on. You, maybe if you've studied the New Testament in any detail, you know all this. It's, the Gospels are the climax of the story of the creator God. They are the climax of the story of the covenant God. They are the climax of the story by which the covenant 
rescues the creation from the problem of the fall. And all those lines come rushing together into the person of Jesus. And unless you read the Gospels with all of that stuff resonating, it's like listening to a Mozart symphony with the knobs twiddled in such a way that you can only actually hear the second violin. And you wonder what that was all about because you're missing the rest of the music. And the Gospels are, of course, the rootedness of the early Christian hope, which, as I said yesterday, from Ephesians 1, from Romans 8, from Revelation 21, from many, many, many other passages, is about God rescuing the creation and flooding it with his love. One of the things which has been so important to me over the last several years has been that great theme which you get in Isaiah 11, echoed in Habakkuk as well, about the promise that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, or in Habakkuk, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And I say to myself, what does it mean the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. The image seems to be of a flood tide coming fuller and fuller and fuller, and the whole creation throbbing and thrilling with the presence and power and passion of God, the passion for restorative justice, for the joy which was supposed to be there in creation in the beginning. And we seem to live in the tension between Isaiah 6, where the the, the seraphim are singing that the whole earth is full of his glory, and Isaiah 11, which says that the world will be full of his glory. And that it both is and isn't yet. And we are the people who, with the kingdom of God in our heads and our hearts and the gospels in front of us, are to be people who carry forward that kingdom project. Not, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, I'm off someplace else. No, that was always a denial of the goodness of the good news, the goodness of creation. And this is why, in case you are wondering... This is why the Gnostic mythology, which is so popular in the Western world, not least North America right now, the Gnostic mythology has to be named and shamed for what it is. This penchant for the Gospel of Thomas and the other pseudo-Gospels that were around in the second and third centuries and which have made such a big comeback is a penchant actually for a self cosseting spirituality which merely reinforces instead of challenging enlightenment dualism and the idea that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John was the idea which is very popular in North America right now, the idea that they were written by people who are settling down and becoming socially conformist and comfortable making sort of a deal with the powers that be while the really exciting flaky Christianity was what you get in all those exciting Gnostic documents, that is absolute rubbish The people who were being thrown to the lions and burnt at the stake in the second century were the ones who were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and Romans, Revelation and so on. While the ones who were reading Thomas and similar documents were giving Caesar no trouble at all. Because the whole point of those documents is that that sort of religion is not about God in public, it's about God in private. And the reason why, I believe, the reason why many people on both sides of the Atlantic want the Gnostic vision to be true rather than the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John vision to be true is that the canonical vision is too darned uncomfortable. It will challenge our way of life in ways that we really don't like to think about. It will challenge us both personally to a deep and radical holiness which Gnosticism merely plays at and publicly to a social holiness and passion for justice which the Gnostic would dismiss as irrelevant. I'm going on too long on this point because, see, I feel passionately about it. But the whole point is that then 
The whole point is then that the whole gospel kingdom of God results in an integrated soteriology. It isn't about me getting saved on the one hand and then me working for God's kingdom in the public space on the other. Precisely because human beings are made in God's image and are to be his stewards in and for creation. Genesis 1, then when a human being becomes a new creation in Christ, they are both part of that new creation and called to implement that new creation. It is all one. You cannot separate it. And the fact that we in the evangelical world find it so difficult to say those two things at once is an indication of that false dichotomy which has radically affected us in the Western world and which the Gospels themselves give us the best answer to. And so on quickly to a theology of rulers. And again, I'm saying some of the things I said yesterday, but from this new angle of vision. The big picture that you have to hold is, of course, of Ephesians 1, of God bringing heaven and earth together in a great act of restorative justice and mercy through Jesus Christ. End of Acts 17, Paul says on the Areopagus, this is the point about Jesus and Anastasis that he'd been talking about in the marketplace and they were puzzled about. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. And my friends, judging the world doesn't mean simply telling the world that it's a, uh, in a mess and is going to be smashed to smithereens or blown sky high. Think about Psalm 96. Think about Psalm 98. When God comes to judge the world, the fields and the trees and the sheep and the rivers all shout for joy because God is putting the whole thing straight at last. Never mind the poor and the lame and the outcast. They shout for joy along with. And the point then about the gospel is that this act of judgment has already taken place in Jesus Christ, which is why in Matthew 28, the Great Commission begins with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I, I must have heard that phrase a thousand times before I realized that it is an enormous challenge to our Western systems. Jesus is Lord of this world. The vox pop of democracy may be the best political system we can get at at the moment, but that doesn't mean that vox pop equals vox dei, vox Christi, vox dei. The voice of Jesus Christ is the voice of God. The Jesus who is with the poor and the little people and the marginalized, who democracies are supposed to help, but today democracies often seem to ignore. So it is Jesus who is Lord in heaven and earth. And rulers, earthly rulers, always did have the task of bringing God's order to God's world. This is hugely important. God never wanted his world to be a chaos. In a chaos, the powerful, the bullies, the people with money and muscle always win out and elbow the poor and the weak out of the way. God wants rulers, authorities, to bring a measure of his order into the world ahead of the time when he will finally bring that order into the world himself on the last day. Of course, as soon as you give anyone the task of doing something like that, you present them with a standing temptation to abuse that authority and so to become part of the problem instead of part of the solution. In other words, the temptation to tyranny. But the answer to the abuse is not the abolition of rulers. This is the mistake that you see that that our stupid post-French Revolution right and left spectrum stuff gets us into. Because we're afraid of tyranny, we embrace anarchy. But anarchy is not the answer. Because in an anarchy, as I said, the weak always go to the wall. 
And so in Jesus Christ, think about it, Jesus as the anointed Messiah, Jesus as the world's true ruler, Jesus is the one who says in that passage which we have narrowed down into a fragment about atonement, but which is actually about political theology, he says, listen, Matthew, uh, Mark 10 verses 35 to 45, the rulers of this world do it one way, but it's not going to be like that with you. With you, anyone who wants to be great must be your slave. Anyone who wants to be first must be servant of all, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You get the atonement theology inside the political theology, and the political theology is the radical upending of the way the world does power in the interest of a servant leadership, which is the church's gift to the world as we are to model it and to advocate it and to press for it. Because astonishingly, in Colossians 1, Paul says not just that the powers were created in and through and for Christ, but that they were redeemed in and through, through and for Christ. And this is Paul who's writing this letter from prison. You know, Paul is not naive. He doesn't think, oh, well, I've got this dreamy picture of the uh, Roman Empire and somehow it's going to work out. Or He knows perfectly well that the rulers are a bunch of no-good thugs out for their own ends. But he clings on by faith to the fact that Jesus is risen and ascended and he is the Lord of the world. And that, therefore, the rulers can and must be called to account. And that is absolutely critical, that the rulers now have the job, whether they know it or not, like Cyrus in the Old Testament, of anticipating God's eventual bringing of restorative justice and mercy to his world. So, and I'll come back to show how that fits, an agenda, very quickly and briefly and finally, an agenda for biblical living in a post-postmodern world, or what would it look like? when God and the public world came back together again in tomorrow's world. First, it must be rooted in transforming worship, transforming worship. And I mean that in both senses, a worship which anticipates the coming together of heaven and earth. The worship we see going on in Revelation 4 and 5, which is a heavenly vision, but actually it's a vision of the heavenly dimension of earthly reality right now. A worship which has its strong sacramental rootedness as the mysterious way in which heaven and earth actually work together in the present. A worship which outflows in prayer in that wonderful passage in Romans 8, which is all about God renewing the whole cosmos. We find at the heart of it Christians groaning in prayer because they don't know quite what they ought to be praying for. Again and again do we not find that in our day. The world is in convulsions. We don't know where we are culturally, socially, politically. And we find ourselves standing there hardly able to get words out when we realize the enormity of what's going on. Because we are people who by our very calling as Christians and by the presence of the Spirit in our hearts are commanded to live at that uncomfortable overlap of the ages. And so to enshrine in our prayers this sense of a world waiting to be born out of the world which at present is groaning in travail. Worship, and this is the point, worship is an essentially public act. 
Worship is, even if you happen to shut the church doors, it is an essentially, it is by its nature a public act. It is the cheerful claiming of heaven and earth as coming together in Jesus Christ and of ourselves being reinforced in our call to be servants, servants of the world, servants of the gospel for his sake. And the transforming worship leads to the transforming witness. I'll be talking about acts, God willing, tonight, and I I shall say a lot more about that then. But in particular, I just want to say a word or two about witness to to the rulers. John chapter 16, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the passage goes on. It's quite a difficult passage in some ways. But the point is this, how does the Spirit do that? The Spirit comes to the church. The Spirit comes to enable the church to be the people who announce what is actually going on, who proclaim God's judgment on the wickedness of the world's power structures and on their failure to follow the way of Christ. And in case you wonder what that's going to look like, you just go on two or three chapters and you find Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and speaking about kingdom and speaking about truth and discovering that Pilate hasn't a clue what he's talking about. God is not interested, however, let me say it strongly, God is not interested in how rulers get to be rulers. God is extremely interested in what rulers do once they become rulers. Our Western emphasis on Vox Pop has produced a theology where once somebody has been voted into office, this is certainly true in my country, they assume that they have a mandate to do whatever they then decide to do. And they can get to the end of their time in office and they can go off and retire and write their memoirs and go on lecture tours and goodness knows what. I've got nothing against lecture tours, but you know what I mean. And and nobody ever says, wait a minute, four years ago you did this, this and this. We need to hold you accountable for that. Kofi Annan, when he left office at the United Nations, said that one of the things we most need is more accountability, and he stressed we need more accountability for those who hold office in the most rich and powerful nations of the world. And I say that, I say that to, to, to myself and my own institutions back home. God is not particularly interested, let's modify it, in how rulers get to be rulers. He is extremely interested in calling them to account. And we need to see how to renew our democratic institutions to confront the abuse of power in all sorts of ways. And the church can only do this if we are modeling wise servant leadership amongst ourselves, in our institutions, in our churches, in my case, in my diocese, etc., etc. That is a constant challenge to us. If there is, in fact, chaos over there and tyranny over there, we in the church must be quite clear that we're into neither and that we find the way through the middle which isn't simply a way of easygoing democracy but the hard-earned, hard-won way of servant leadership. So transforming worship, transforming witness, and finally, 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 transforming wisdom. Transforming wisdom. In this country particularly, but in mine as well, the God in public thing has collapsed into people doing academic study over there and people doing Christian faith development over there. And I know it's difficult. I know that the fundamentalists will rush in and say whatever is the question, whether it's computer science or music or biology or whatever, Jesus and the Bible will give you the instant answer. And that's the kiss of death to any academic program if people come muscling in saying that. But I know that equally the secularists are not doing us any good 
by saying, just keep that faith talk in private and we will tell you the historical, objective, scientific truth, which is the thing that really runs the world. We must not allow that false polarization to take place, but must strive in the academy for the wise reintegration of what should never have been separated. And faith in our culture as we move into the post-modern world Nobody is really leading the way there at the moment, are they? We've got a lot of negativity around. We've got a lot of art and music which is basically saying we don't know much what's going on, but we're throwing it in the air and hoping it lands somewhere. Maybe it is the Christian church recapturing a vision of new creation, of the pain of the present creation, but anticipating new creation. Maybe it is that vision and the church that embraces it which will inspire a new generation of novelists and artists and composers and dancers and all the rest of them to go out and celebrate this not glib but very deep, not uh, easygoing but very powerful vision of God's new world. Because the way forward into a fresh understanding of God's truth is going to begin for many people with the imagination. And if we aren't leading the way into that world of the imagination, which leads the way into what could be one of the greatest Christian centuries ever, then shame on us. My brothers and sisters, that is the aim. God is public. We must do God in public, but not the way that we've so often been deceived into thinking was the only way. We've got to do it the kingdom way, the Jesus way, the spirit way, the servant way. And let's start now. Thank you.